0: Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. Hello. And today we are talking about operative vaginal deliveries. So operative vaginal deliveries consist of two main types, which are vacuum assisted vaginal deliveries and forceps assisted vaginal deliveries. So when I'm talking about the composite of both of those two things, I'm going to say operative vaginal delivery, or in the show notes, you might see OVD. Um, And then uh, if I'm talking about one or the other, more specifically, I will try and let you know which one I am talking about. So overall, operative vaginal deliveries have been decreasing in the. US, um, and they're down to about 3% of all vaginal deliveries. Um, at the same time as this decrease, our C-section rate in the US has been going up. Um, so it's high suspicion that a lot of these things that could have uh, deliveries that could have been operative vaginal deliveries are shifting over to be c-sections for a variety of reasons. Um, to get into all that, let's first talk about the indications. Why do we do operative vaginal deliveries? Why do we help um, help, pregnant people have vaginal deliveries. So the process of an operative vaginal delivery is somebody has labored, they have gotten to be fully dilated, so 10 centimeters dilated, um, and have typically started pushing for most people. There's a few exceptions we'll talk about later, but most people have then started pushing. Um, as they've started pushing, the fetal um, head has descended and the fetal head has to be at plus two um, station at the very highest. More typically, operative vaginal deliveries are going to occur around plus three, plus four station. Um The reasons that we would do them in those cases, um, what's called a prolonged second stage. So if um, if somebody's been pushing for three to four hours um, and they're making some progress but they're just getting exhausted, and so the additional progress with each additional push is decreasing, um, that's an indication to offer a operative vaginal delivery. Um, If there's any potential risk of fetal compromise, so particularly if somebody has been pushing for a while and the tracing is starting to slowly look worse, the main thing we look at during pushing is going to be the variability. This is going to tell us the fetal oxygenation status and if we can be sure that the fetus fetus is well-oxygenated despite um, all this marathon um, sprinting that they've been doing in labor. So if the tracing starts to look worse, um, but we know we're really close to a vaginal delivery, we may recommend again an operative vaginal delivery. And then there's some cases in which it is for the maternal benefit to shorten the second stage um, or eliminate the second stage um, almost entirely. The most common things that you might see at a tertiary center are going to be cardiac conditions. So if somebody has um, certain cardiac conditions are going to be contraindications to Valsalva, um, and you have to Valsalva to push. So if you cannot Valsalva, then we will need to help with that second stage of labor. Um, the two ways we help, like I said, are either a forceps-assisted vaginal delivery or a vacuum-assisted vaginal delivery. So some women with contraindications to Valsalva are going to get the option ahead of time before they're in labor to either just have a primary C-section to avoid the need for any Valsalva or a planned operative vaginal delivery, in which if they make it um, to you know completely dilated and at a low enough station that we can pull out the baby, we can then help deliver the baby by pulling it out. Um, So those are the three indications. Um, There's lots of variations on each of those, but prolonged second stage, risk of fetal compromise, or shortening the second stage for maternal benefit are the three indications. So once you begin um, thinking there's an indication here, there's a process um, of consenting the patient and really thinking about the risks and benefits yourself, and then also talking to the patient about all this. In some places, you may have come to find out that the patient has already been consented um, for all of the what ifs of labor and delivery in the office. Uh, some of the practices I've been a part of have done this, where we try to get through the, all the consent in the office while the patient really has time um, to think through things, ask great questions, and there's nothing urgent in the moment. Other patients won't have been given this benefit, and you'll be consenting them in the moment. Even if they have been consented in the office, most of us will probably still run through a quick verbal consent with them regardless. So we're thinking about um, most of these indications. The alternative here is not a vaginal delivery. The alternative here is a C-section. And so making sure you're framing the discussion in the appropriate way for the patient, because the appropriate comparison group here when we're talking about the risks of operative vaginal delivery are not those who came in and had a beautiful, uncomplicated, spontaneous vaginal delivery. That ship has sailed for this patient in all likelihood. So we're here thinking about, is it better to have a C-section in labor or is it better to have a operative vaginal delivery or a trial of an operative vaginal delivery? So the um, things to think about for this, the failure rate of an operative vaginal delivery is anywhere from about 3 to 10%, depending on the study that you look at. The forceps do have a higher success rate over vacuum, but they also have a higher rate of third and fourth degree perineal lacerations to be considered. So things to be thinking about um, as you're both going through your own mental list of risks and benefits, but also talking to mom. There are risks to both um, the patient, uh, the pregnant patient and the fetus, um, and you got to kind of talk through the, both of those with them. I'm not going to go through all of the specifics today because it's kind of outside the scope of what you guys need to know, but know that those all are going to be practor- um, factoring into our discussion. Most of us as providers, we better trained probably on one of these two modes of operative vaginal delivery over the other. Some people do enough obstetrics, that they really are phenomenal at both. But most of us have a preference for one that we're better at um, or that we think is less likely to cause complications in our own hands than the other. For me, I was better trained on forceps. I do a lot of um, forceps over vacuum. There are clinical scenarios in which a vacuum I think is more appropriate. And so I feel comfortable doing the, that as well. But when it is... Um, when all things are the same, I prefer forceps. Um, so you'll probably see a trend either um, locationally where you are, or also if it's in a training program, different types of providers or people who trained in different areas um, are going to have different preferences, which also factors in here because provider comfort and expertise is the number one predictor here of complications. So there's not one that's better than the other. There's one that's better in the hands of that provider than the other probably. So um, that's also a big factor. All right. So then say we've consented the patient and I'm in the room, so we're going to be doing forceps-assisted vaginal delivery. Um, We're going to go through the prep phase. So the prep phase is Um, the providers in the room, so typically myself and a resident, are going to be confirming that the fetus is in an appropriate station and position. So we need to know which way the fetal head is facing to make sure we apply the device appropriately, in my case, forceps. But same goes for a vacuum. You need to make sure the patient also has adequate anesthesia, Um, forceps particularly, a lot of pressure, a lot of discomfort. Typically, these patients need to have um, an epidural. Every once in a while, you can get away with a pudendal block, but a pudendal block is still going to have a lot of pressure. And so if the patient cannot sit still or tolerate that, that is... um, then they may need to have an epidural. They need to have an empty bladder to make sure to um, reduce the risk of any bladder trauma in the process then we need to be making sure that we have assessed the pelvis and the passenger. So the maternal pelvis and the fetal passenger to make sure that the sizes are congruent, that we don't think we're going to have any cephalopelvic disproportion, that we think the fetus is actually going to fit. If the reason that she is not able to push the fetus out is simply because the fetal bones do not fit through the maternal pelvis, us pulling on the fetus is not going to do a darn thing to help it. Um, And so in those cases, we may say, you know what, you are not a good candidate for an operative vaginal delivery, and we're going to change our recommend to be a C-section. This is why it's so important when we're admitting patients that we're doing Leopold's and we're estimating the fetal weight um, because once the fetus has descended into the pelvis, it is harder to assess fetal weight. Um, and so we feel both the maternal bones of the pelvis to make sure the pelvis feels adequate. And then the fetal head, we feel the fetal head also for what's called caput, which is, um, swelling or edema on the skull, which can indicate excessive pressure, um, behind it or, um, molding, which is the overlapping of the fetal bones, um, in the fetal head. We also need to make sure that our OR is ready. The backup plan for any operative vaginal delivery is a C-section. So we need to make sure that our OR staff and the physical room are ready for us if we go, because if we fail at our operative vaginal delivery, it is an emergency C-section. And the final thing I always like to make sure is that PEDS is readily available. I want my pediatricians to be aware that I'm going to be doing an operative vaginal delivery and ideally be in the room before I start. Um, The only time I might not wait for them is truly an emergency. Um you may see references to episiotomies in relation to operative vaginal deliveries and there was a time and place when episiotomies were very common. Um and typically like 80s and prior episiotomies were very common. The thought process was um that if you make a clean cut in the perineum it's going to Go back together better. You're gonna have better wound healing and a better chance of a better approximation and repair. That has been disproven. So the data shows that episiotomies are gonna again increase your risk of third and fourth degree lacerations. And so we only do episiotomies if we really, um, if there is a need for additional space um, that we're not able to get without one. And more commonly nowadays, you'll see people do what's called medial lateral or sort of off to the side. If you're looking at a clock face, we're talking like four or um, eight o'clock as opposed to six o'clock where they used to be that six o'clock would be your uh, midline episiotomy, um, to try and reduce the risk of sphincter injuries. Um, so we do not routinely do episiotomies. I always reassure moms that there are times in which I feel like I do need to do them, but I honestly couldn't tell you the last time I've done one. It's been a very long time and I hope to keep it that way. Um, the real quick contraindications to, um, to operative vaginal deliveries, generally speaking, there's um, fetal conditions, so known or suspected bone disorders like osteogenesis imperfecta, um, or bleeding disorders, so plateless disorders, von Willebrand's, autoimmune thrombocytopenia, things like that are going to be contraindications because we could cause harm to baby by pulling um, or using suction on the bones or the skull maternal um, infections like Hep C and HIV are relative contraindications. Um, There could be some more remote situations in which that is your better option. Um, But for the most part in those situations, if they can't have a spontaneous vaginal delivery, we're going to recommend a C-section unless you're in a resource-limited situation. Um, The other big one is really just concern for a shoulder dystocia or that cephalopelic disproportion that we already mentioned. So if somebody has a bunch of risk factors for a shoulder dystocia, if um, they have poorly controlled type 2 diabetes and on their last ultrasound, the um, abdomen, the AC was measuring greater than the 99th percentile, the total fetal weight we estimate to be nine or 10 pounds. I am probably not going to be offering that person um, an operative vaginal delivery because if I pull with either a vacuum or forceps and deliver the head and then get myself into a place where I'm in a shoulder dystocia, that is, we went from a controlled but urgent C-section to an emergency delivery, either an emergency resolution of the shoulder dystocia, or you know, worst-case scenario, having to replace the fetus into the abdomen and do a C-section at that point. So, any um, significant concern for shoulder dystocia, and that can be pr- before you do a va- um, an operative vaginal delivery, or even in the middle of your attempt at an operative vaginal delivery. If I am pulling and I'm not seeing movement and I'm not feeling movement, we may then say, you know what, we tried. I don't think this is a good idea. We're going to stop right now before it's an emergency and we're going to recommend an urgency section. Um, so you can see a lot of things happen during these operative vaginal deliveries, but like I said, they're only about 3% of all vaginal deliveries in the state. So you may not be get a chance to see one. um, if you're just doing your regular third year clerkship, if you decide that you want to learn more about OB going in family medicine, OBGYN, any of those things, and you spend more time on labor and delivery, you'll have a higher chance of getting to see one of these. Um, I think there's still so much more about um, operative vaginal deliveries to talk about, but a lot of that is going to really just be above your um, your need to know basis. So I'm trying to keep it succinct for your shelf and for your um, uh, on the floors and stuff. But if you want to know more, um, there's a great uh, Creogs Over Coffee, which is aimed at OBGYN residents um, podcast on operative vaginal delivery that really gets more into the nitty gritty. If you're like a fourth year student or you're starting your OBGYN residency, that is the podcast I'd recommend for all the nitty gritty. All right. Hope you guys have a good day and uh, talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new clerkship ready pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a procedure ready or clerkship ready podcast for their specialty, pass along your information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.